Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 6 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Octor here, and it's a pleasure to be back talking to you again. This is a listener's questions episode, but it's a listener's questions episode with a bit of a difference. We've had a huge volume of queries and questions about how to help a child with ASD, or Autistic Spectrum Disorder. And given the amount of queries that we've had, we've decided to dedicate one episode to discuss this topic. Obviously, it may not be for everyone, because if you don't have a child with ASD, you might think, well, why would I listen to this? Well, you should listen to it because there's more than likely going to be a child in your own child's class or in your neighborhood, or certainly somebody who you know who is struggling with this condition. And what we're trying to do is increase an awareness and insight so that we can move towards a more meaningful inclusivity of children with ASD into our communities and our peer groups and our schools. Now, obviously, the challenges for parents with ASD are met with a deficit, it's fair to say, in services and support. And so it is a real challenge for a young person with ASD and their parents and families to try and manage the social landscape. So if we are to try and discuss this issue, we're hoping that we'll give people an insight as to the varying different presentations of ASD from someone who may have very mild traits of Asperger's and has some social communication difficulties and emotional immaturity to those who may be more, have more profound difficulties with autism and may really struggle in mainstream schools and settings. And so from the point of view of giving an insight, we're hoping that we'll do something to raise awareness of this condition and maybe as communities, as I say, and peers and schools and groups, we can become more inclusive with that understanding. The world of ASD is very complex and there are many sensitivities, understandably, from people around the use of different terms and language. And in the spirit of this podcast, I would ask you to, if we have at times used language that is not your preference, we apologize for that and mean no offense by it. But we'd hope that you'd be able to look past it and see that this podcast is something that we are trying to do to give voice to largely invisible or voiceless Uh, sections of our community and really work towards inclusivity, insight and inclusion. We really hope you enjoy the episode and if you listen to it, maybe even pick up some insights and tips at how we can all help in this uh, very challenging set of circumstances. So I'll let you go now and listen to myself and Miriam Kenny discuss the topic in far more detail. Hey everybody, welcome back to episode six of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Octor, and today we're going to be doing the listeners' questions episode. As I mentioned last week, we were getting a huge amount of questions about ASD or autistic spectrum disorder. So we've decided today to dedicate the first part of the episode to this topic. And with this in mind, I've asked Miriam Kenny to join me today to discuss these issues. Miriam is the chairperson of Involve Autism, which was established by a group of parents in Terenure in July 2018. It was arising from a serious deficit in ASD classes in mainstream schools in South Dublin, and Involve Autism was set up to advocate for appropriate and inclusive educational provision for autistic children, both primary and secondary. As a graduate of St. Vincent's University Hospital in UCD with qualifications in health, education and music and management, Miriam has worked in a number of roles in health and education at a senior level. She's passionate about education and enabling students and people to reach their true potential no matter what their perceived ability is, and being a mother of an autistic child has, her, has led her to be an advocate for him and other children in order to have access for appropriate education in their local community. And so it gives me great pleasure to introduce 
Miriam to the podcast today. Many thanks, um, Coma, for asking me to be part of it today. And hopefully I can talk about the perspective of being a parent of an autistic child and, and the challenges that can go with that and maybe answer some of the questions or, with you um, about some of the questions that you received uh, from other parents. Perfect. And, and from the point of view of 2020, Miriam, has thrown up challenges for a lot of people. How has it been for you? Well, it was, would have been particularly difficult. Our child really missed school and really needed the structure of school. And I suppose socialization as attached to school, particularly when your child is autistic. So we found that very difficult and he found it very difficult. And homeschooling then, again, an, an autistic child, very uh, difficult to do that. I suppose I was in a lucky position because I do have a background in education that I could kind of manage a little bit. And we only have one child but I know that it was very complex for a lot of our parents that are involved with autism that have maybe had three children. Some parents had children with two children with autism who were at home um, and also very concerned about how to support them. And, and not every school was provided the same level of support. It was very dependent on where your child went to school. We did get phenomenal support from our child's school, which was great. And so we did manage to keep that. But it was very challenging for him, also challenging um, trying to work with that. And I think the great thing is that they're back in school now. And I think a lot of our parents are breathing a sigh of relief. Also, I think a lot of the children would have regressed during that period of time because they were out so their structure was gone you know any supports that anybody had both from an educational perspective and if they were getting anything from health or ot slt external supports were also gone so parents are completely left on their own then very difficult for parents so delighted i know there's lots of complexities around children being back in school and everything but it really was something that needed to happen for those children in particular. And probably in retrospect, I would feel that they should have really tried as much as they could. I know it was very difficult at the time to try and keep the children with special needs and also kids with kind of disadvantaged children in also in school or vulnerable children in school as much as they could. But I suppose at the time they made a blanket decision. But I think the implications were quite you know, high on a lot of people, both on the parents, obviously, and the children. Sure. And I think in... In the interest of full disclosure here, it's important to say I have two nephews who are on the autistic spectrum. And from the point of view of, I know resources have been challenging to get. And from the point of view of, tell me a little bit about Involve Autism and in terms of the, uh, the advocacy piece that that, is, that that involves. So I suppose we set up Smalley Involve Autism in, in July 2018 about a response firstly to a lot of parents. Firstly, I suppose parents coming forward to say, look, I've nowhere to send my child to school and what am I going to do? So with relation to education of an autistic child, lots of children manage very well within the mainstream setting and are supported very well within that when they do get the supports and we have fantastic schools and we have fantastic schools that do that. But there is a cohort of child who doesn't manage in that setting and needs the extra support of a special class and or maybe a special school interdependent on that child. Uh, every child is different. They would always say that about autism. And I suppose you are really making sure that you are you know, addressing the needs of that individual child. So what had happened for us was initially a small little group of parents and a lot of would have felt very isolated in the area because it was kind of not talked about from my own perspective i felt very isolated i did not know one other parent who had an autistic child so i spent my time kind of walking around going am i the only person who's got a child with autism and it turned out i wasn't 
So we've come together, I suppose, initially to look at the advocacy to do with education. We talked about my passion for education and we have done an awful lot of work in that space. We have worked with a number of politicians. We've met every politician. We've been in and out of the door to try and get the gap in better class provision addressed in the areas, particularly of Dublin 6 and 6W because none of our schools had special classes except for one when we started off. So as a result of that, the Education Act has changed and there is now provision for the 37A process where schools can be compelled to open special classes. So after a rather lengthy campaign, that has happened. And there are other parental groups as well that have come together in the South Dublin area, which is fantastic to see as well. And it's fantastic to see those parents coming forward now too to say, listen, this isn't right. You know, we need our children in the local community. So for us then, some schools have been compelled. And you might have seen that last week that the minister compelled 25 schools in South Dublin to open special classes. And that's absolutely fantastic. It'll make a huge difference to a number of families and children in those areas. But unfortunately, still in our area, there is an absolute disproportionate amount of special classes. So why are we advocating is because the majority of our children are either on a bus and most of them are been bused or taxi past our fantastic local schools. And everybody else's children are walking to their schools and our children aren't. Everybody else's children are part of the community. Our children aren't. And my argument, I suppose, always has been if your child is not part of the community as a child, they will not be part of the community as an adult. And this doesn't, autism doesn't go away. And autism is a lifelong condition. And I think it's very important for that acknowledgement to be there. So education is the great enabler for me and everybody has potential. And in, in order to be able to reach your potential, you need to be supported correctly and you need to be in the right educational environment for that to happen. So our three pillars really are support, advocacy and conclusion. So I suppose the support is really peer support. We've made great friendships through this. We've met some, some spectacular parents through it. It's been great to have each other. The advocacy piece, we're talking about education at the moment. I think there's a big room for health advocacy around this as well. And then the inclusion piece for us is very important that our children are in our local schools and well supported. We also had a big public meeting there in February. Our 300 parents, teachers, principals, and it was two days before the election arrived and TDs from three different constituencies were at that as well. We had a number of principals at the meeting. We had teachers at the meeting, um, local kind of community activists, etc. And also we had a panel and the panel, we had Adam Harris from As I Am was on the panel. We had Davida Hartman, the psychologist, who's you know got a great um, interest in obviously an area of, to do with autism. We had a principal who had two special classes. I made Mick Clifford, the journalist with the NCSE, and we also had uh, somebody from the Archdiocese. So our parents then also stood up and gave some of their testimonials and their stories. And when our parents did that, and we also provided a presentation and did read the facts about the, the disparity in provision. And when you saw the actual facts and the presentation, you couldn't argue with it. But some of our parents stood up and said testimonials about how it affected them not having a special class for their child in their local area and there wasn't a dry eye in the house after that because people were very upset. So I think it's really important for me to start empowering parents because you can feel very vulnerable 
when your child has a special need and you can be feel as if and this maybe I'm going to talk to my own perspective that you just have to accept what is given to you sure that'll do you sure there is a place for your child but in my words that won't do actually because it wouldn't do for any other child we should be ambitious for every child it doesn't matter who they are where they're from education to me is is absolutely paramount and I'm passionate about that and I think you know there's great examples of when an edu- education can change people's lives and it does change people's lives and why why aren't we need to be ambitious for our children who are autistic and we need to ensure that they reach their true potential and that's all this is about for me and being child centric it's about the child and this is what this is a bit about and of course the parents need support within that but the child i suppose that's what a lot of the battle is around trying to get the the right uh, services for your child at all times is the issue sure and i think Miriam, with the the issue with and this is always fascinates me because there is a lot of advocacy left down to the individual and the parent and in that sense there's a lot of pressure on them to do that and already if you have it and I know from my own sister's experience spare time is not something that autistic parents parents of autistic children have and so it always marvel I always marvel around the way in which they they find the drive to do it and, and people like yourself to come out and advocate for their child in such because again I think the political will is lacking in terms of responding and, and managing it for them but my point being that just the level of support out there is very much a community of support from parents who are going through really difficult times. And I think we need to step up and support people who are already overstretched in terms of trying to manage uh, the situations at home. And I think over COVID, they have been an invisible group that have, you know, because they've lost out on, I mean, speech and language and OT support and these they are essential services when it comes to raising an autistic child. And, and I suppose from the point of view, the volume of people that turned up at your meeting is probably reflective of the volume of questions that we've gotten in since we started the podcast, Miriam. And, and again, I would say that the ASD spectrum is exactly that. It is a spectrum of behavior from people who are uh, profoundly autistic to somebody who may have a Aspergery traits to somebody who might be what we described as pervasive developmental disorders, so they have a touch of this, but not much of that. So the, the varied experience of people is, is massive across the spectrum. And so they might have very different experiences, but primarily the questions that we were getting in, and I wonder if this surprises you, were along the lines of what is ASD and should we discuss the diagnosis with your child? What supports are available? And how do we help children with ASD journey through their life? Now, you've spoken a lot about the importance of education and how pivotal that is in terms of their support and integration into the community. And I think that's fantastic. But for parents, would that be kind of representative of of much of the struggle that people would come to your vision or radar when when they would be looking for support or help? I suppose the first thing about uh, discussing the diagnosis probably wouldn't come in a lot with parents and the children may be a little bit older and they may become a little bit more aware that they may feel themselves that they are a bit different. You know what I mean? Or some children might, might have any idea about that, but you will begin, I think, as to become more aware of themselves and self-aware, start maybe asking questions about that. And that then again is very interdependent on that child. Do you know what I mean? When that mm. might happen. So with the supports available, absolutely, this is where people do not know what to do. And I think what has happened here is that we have a system that is system centric and not child centric. So it's about the system. Um, the system is overloaded. It's very much postcode lottery as to where you live, as to where you get services. 
So I'll give you an example. I rang myself recently to find out about services for my own child and I was told to be a five-year waiting list. So we'll just put that out there. And that, and then other parents contacted me and said, no, I was told seven years from that same service. Okay. So from the health service point of view, the supports there, they're not there. They, they really, it depends on where you live and really there is no service. So and I think that should be quite clearly said. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So there's no point going and doing a diagnosis on a child and saying to them, here's, we've done an assessment of need. Your child, you know, is autistic. Sorry about that. Sure, we'll see you later. You don't do that on any other diagnostic process if you receive anything in health to do with diabetes, epilepsy, cancer, anything like that. There is a pathway of care. But what happens here is there's mostly, not this isn't everybody's experience. Again, it depends on where you live, the lack of a multi, multidisciplinary team. My own child went through assessment of need and uh, reports were sent to us in the post. Nobody went through them with us. You wouldn't get that in any, that, that's wrong. You know, ethically, that's wrong from a health, from my, my background in health, that's completely wrong for that to have happened. So the support side is very, so basically the health and the education side of things are the things that the parents are constantly upset about. And also within that, then there's the mental health of the parents that goes with that. So what about the supports for those parents who are trying to cope with that? So you've got the diagnosis of your child and trying to manage and work with your child. And your child isn't just a diagnosis. They are your child first, and they happen to have a diagnosis. I'd say that first, but in order them to be enabled to be their best self they need support so you then think round i'm going to go and ring the health service and see what happens and then you get no 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 then you're trying to find a, an appropriate placement for your child and in the case of a child that needs a special class that recommendation comes from a, a, a psychologist you know what i mean you're not making that up so you are saying oh, i have to find this for my child and then within that process, there's very little support. Then you're you're you ring up the agency that you think should be supporting you, and you're told, "Listen, there's a list." And sure, listen, off you go. And a lot of our parents would have been applying to 30 different schools, putting in their reports to those schools, and hoping that somebody might get back to them. You know, so in a, in a complexity of a child, then you're you're obviously got to the day to day trying to work with your child and trying to live with the child and again I, I we've only one child but there are parents in our group that have children two children with autism and they might have other siblings on top of that it's multi-layered as to how they manage their day so it's really now at this stage that i i really feel that like a lot of our parents have been very distressed and I mean that and been distressed myself. Yeah, and that's the best word. That's the way, best way of putting it, you know. And and I suppose unless you're, you know, you walk in somebody else's shoes, you don't really understand that. And, we're, and you can't expect people to understand that. But surely the systems that are there to try and that are supposed to be there to support us should be supporting us a lot better. So I think that's the complexities that's around that when you have an autistic child. And, and given the, the system deficits and failures again maybe for the purposes of the podcast it's the everyday bits we might be talking about today in terms of trying to support parents who clearly are systemically unsupported in that way and they're trying to manage these things and trying to you know interpret reports and trying to interpret diagnosis and, and know what's best so I think today probably I, I'm thinking the most helpful approach to this would be to be as creative and supportive around what we have in terms of the advice around the question. So, Miriam, what questions have come in there? You had a chance to, to have a look through them there. 
Yeah, I just, I suppose, just looking at something to do with maybe with a teenager who's autistic, you know, and asking a question specifically around a girl who's autistic. And I think what's happening now is the prevalence of autism has always been perceived as being very boy specific, that one in four boys actually have autism. But it's really becoming more apparent that girls have been masking this for years. So and maybe they have other comorbid things happen to them. And yet it's because they were autistic and nobody knew about that. So it's just interesting to read one of your questions is around autism in girls. So I just give you a little bit of the flavor of the question that was asked. So without going into minute detail, we have just received an ASD girl presentation diagnosis for a 15 year old daughter after very difficult and challenging two years. There were mental health problems initially, and we have been attending CAMS for almost two years, a few times being very close to being an inpatient. However, thanks to a super psychologist who has supported us throughout, she suggested we go down the route of an ASD assessment. I've been in touch with the school and behind the scenes, they're putting more support structures in place to help her. Our daughter is very intelligent and from what we are told is highly skilled in masking but socially is way behind and struggles to fit in and make maintain close friendship. We have not told her yet of her diagnosis and are hoping for some guidance and advice on how to communicate this, how to help her understand and how to help her siblings understand. And she would really appreciate your comments on that. Okay, so that's a really interesting one, Miriam, because it, it does become the issue of the diagnosis and whether the diagnosis is a good thing or not. And I think from the point of view of there, I've seen it being a real benefit to young people who get their diagnosis and understand that their difficulties are not their fault. And I really think for, for children at ASD, self-worth, self-belief uh, and self-value is so crucially important to their own sense of purpose and meaning. And oftentimes they feel that they can't do things and it makes them feel socially that they're not enough um, maybe even educationally, sometimes they're not enough. And, and that the scar of the, the low self-esteem and self-worth can be really effective to their mood and their anxieties, etc. So in cases where you're trying to explain to somebody, this isn't your fault, this is not something that you're not willing to do, or you're not bright enough, or you're not able, this is a limitation, and this is something that you need to work with. And oftentimes, for children who have something like dyslexia or something like that, when you're explaining that this is outside of your control and this is something that you have to work around as opposed to it being something that you're just not doing enough work with or you're lazy or you're you know, not trying hard enough, it is really important for children to feel comforted in that. The second thing is that some children react negatively to a diagnosis and would see that as the label having a negative connotation and limitations on them and not wanting other people to know it. And so each person will react differently to it. I, I think there's a benefit in discussing the diagnosis with the person themselves to give them the option of whether they want to utilize the diagnosis to negotiate the world or whether they want to negotiate the world without it. Uh, and I think they should be given that afforded that opportunity, especially in their teen years when they're a little bit older. But I have seen in cases where this diagnosis has just lifted a fog or a mist. And they said, that's why this is, the, I haven't been able to manage friendships. That's why people, you know, might get annoyed at me, or that's why I can't organize my bag as quickly as everyone else when everyone's kind of getting ready for things. And I do think there is a benefit to the peer support of knowing that a child who has those needs 
is not needing to be under the same pressure as everybody else. Do you know what I mean? From the point of view of a child who, who can't see the blackboard is because their vision isn't, you know, and if you make that child kind of continue to take the homework down from the blackboard without giving them a pair of glasses or giving them some compensation for that, they're going to really struggle. So where the, where the diagnosis can be a benefit is in integration, inclusion, but mostly from a self-esteem, self-worth and self-belief point of view. And I think it can have a very positive effect on that when the child, as I say, that mist lifts and things start to make sense. Does that make sense to you, Miriam? It does make sense to me. And I, I think the other thing is we need to flip the narrative around it. Firstly, if the child has received a diagnosis, that can assist, you know, with, with as you said, an understanding for that child, especially with a 15-year-old, as to, oh, God, I, I didn't understand this, and now I do understand it. But also, when they're in the education environment at school, but they will also get supports then within school. So, you know, working with, first the child to understand their diagnosis, I suppose the parents has to kind of live with that too. This is what's happened. How do I deal with that? And then there are lots of books out there to, you know, around that, that you, that you maybe could recommend at the end around about a diagnosis of, of a child and frequently asked questions you could look at there, but also child, you know, with any diagnosis, you do tell people on a needs to know basis. So, you know, and that child can be the person who decides who am I going to tell when I'm happy enough to tell. So it's a, it's a process first, I suppose, the parents learning, learning a little bit more about it, supporting the child. The child will very much be supported in a school environment there to ensure that they, again, can enable them to be in school and, you know, to, to work with them to provide those supports. And then outside that, then working with the child. So the child, it's the child's di diagnosis and how are they going to use that? And I keep coming back to it. The diagnosis is one thing and the person is the other, you know. But the supports need to be put in place now for that child to be able to flourish really within that. For sure. And was there other similar questions? Well, these are around social skills, I suppose, for a child who's a little bit younger, who's currently in primary school and is going to be transitioning into secondary. Mum or the parent here has spoken about the fact he's a small group of pals, which is great, but his big challenge is socialising with peers or adults outside the group of people he knows best. As he goes into secondary, with none of his friends going, our main focus is on helping him to develop social skills chit-chat. At the moment, he would be completely avoid engaging in conversation with someone new or not part of a small group. So they very much are trying to increase his social skills and will be concerned. And I suppose one of the big transition points, again, for any child is a transition from primary school into second level. No matter who you are, that's a transition that's difficult. And then is very worried that none of the child's um, friends are going and on about his social skills so they're asking a question around that yeah i mean i think that the issue of the transition you're absolutely right is huge and i think from the point of view of the scaffolding of primary school and then the change of gear into secondary school where you have to negotiate geography and timetables and for children who who really thrive on routine and consistency you know that one teacher with you in primary school is trying to negotiate the challenges of uh, books and bringing in the right books and going to the locker and all that sort of stuff. So it oftentimes presents a huge difficulty for children uh, in terms of making that step up. The issue here that, that, so I think preparing him as much, and again, it comes down to the supports in the school would be hugely important here that, that the child is supported sufficiently to the level that they need. The issue around social chit chat is interesting. And again, I think that comes down to a lot of parental labor, unfortunately, but it's around coaching the child to be able to 
to learn to almost mimic the skills of social skills around listening to other people, allowing people to turn taking conversations. And as, as the parents are trying to do this around family time and dinner time, and again, you might have cousins or something who might be available to come around and almost not role play, that's a little bit, but kind of practice social situations where you're allowing the child to kind of, but I would seriously try and, when your child is managing these situations well, it's really important to reassure them that they're managing it well or reassure that the stuff that they're doing well. Because if a child just feels that they're not doing enough all the time, their energy and commitment to try it will fatigue. So it's really about the quick wins here. It's really about trying to catch them managing a social situation really well, feeding back to them how well they did, and you know, trying to, again, provide very practical advice around turn-taking in conversation, around you know, listening to other people, around... Uh, you know, uh, speaking slower and trying to practice those things. And, you know, those things will pay off because uh, the child will learn that the world responds to them better when they manage it. And again, it is, it's it's a time investing issue. But from the parent's point of view, uh, I wouldn't have a lot more advice than what they're trying already, but it is about coaching them. And again, just a lot of scaffolding in the secondary school move, because I think that will be a challenge. So I think what's very important is transition planning for that child, based on what I see here. And also the school needs to be very involved with that with them. When they do go into secondary school, uh, supports then again uh, should be available in the school. And if they're aware of those things, you know, to provide the structure around to provide, you know, around the social side of things, it could be through sport, it could be through music. Again, an autistic child, you know, communicates in a different way. It's not, they're not going to be, you know, they're not meant to be the same as everybody else. They're themselves. You know, that's the most important things to say. From the social context, though, it might be one or two really good friends. That's enough for them. If a child, it could be, it's finding the child's interest as well. What is the child very interested in? And that could be a way in of getting some social kind of like, I know from I had worked beforehand I'd done a thesis with about autism and employment and some of the adults were involved in gaming and gaming but games as in board games and they would go in and play board games and and they got to know each other and they were very interested in that together so that was their friendships and that's the way their friendships are so cultivating interests in for that child could be something that could help with social transition there involved in as I said sport maybe there might be sport involved in music involved in chess in involved in reading whatever that child's interest is you know you could I mean it is always a difficulty and um, social communication obviously for an autistic person is is a difficulty but you know I I, I think very much if the transition period is there and they are doing as much as they can there would be to work very much with the school as well and then you know because they do um, schools always have open when they start off they have induction period with the with the students as well you know so they might get a buddy from a higher year maybe sometimes that helps you know and and it depends on a mentors within schools it's interdependent on what every school does but i think that could maybe help there and miriam just a question on, and this is the thing it comes up a lot in the years that i'm doing this and i, I think that for me the jury is still out about how much we do of each now social integration is an interesting concept because do you encourage the child to integrate into the cultural norm or do you expect the cultural norm to adjust to the child? And again, that's a difficult thing to get around because, you know, um, I, I can remember years ago having a discussion with colleagues about a child who, who let's imagine, was going into school with uh, dyed their hair blue and they were getting kind of teased about the blue hair. 
my solution at the time was, well, just don't dye your hair blue and you won't be a target of that. And then there was other people in the team who were saying, why are you trying to take away his individuality? He should be able to do that and be who he wants to be. You get caught up in this dilemma of, do you create a child who fits into the world or do you try and bring the world to fit into and negotiate the child? And there's time issues with that. I mean, how long does it take for culture to adjust and everything else? The second side of that is, I really like the idea of special resources and things, but I'm not so sure that outsourcing children from mainstream classes all the time is a good idea either. So that you have this, what I would describe as a very narrow normative child. So this, this child has needs, so they get sent out to this class. And, they said, and whereas when I was growing up, I think there were many children in my class that had needs, but they were integrated into the mainstream of the class. And so, you know, just because one person was doing second class reading when we were all doing fourth class reading, it was kind of, it didn't stand out from the point of view of, it was just, it seemed more part of the community. And I think, the, and I don't expect you to have the answer to this in any, any stretch, but there is that dilemma about, do we, do we work on the child or do we work on the community? Or do we, and I think we work on both, but I'm just trying to kind of figure out how we overcome those dilemmas. Because sometimes parents, when you're trying to coach your child to fit in, you might be, complexly kind of challenged on that because that's not really endorsing your child's individuality but then there's a necessity to fit in I think in terms of cultural norms and society is there not and how do or do we wait for society to pick up on that I know that's a big philosophical question but well I think it is but I think to come back to the schooling point of view um students are very much included in the classroom now through differentiation and that would be the way um schools would be expected now to, to cope with that so you can have the child who is a very high achiever the child who is considered to be middle of the road I mean the child's got more you know additional needs and every one of those children should be catered for within that school environment and that's very important to say that so that really is something I think that governmentally they're trying to do with it with terms of inclusion I suppose from an autistic what I know of it is about trying to get the environment to start to acknowledge the difference of the child and support that you know so as a parent of course you you're neuro I'm neurotypical I think I am anyway or whatever that means and I'm very sociable, but my, my child is not able for that at all. And he absolutely is not. And no matter how much I'm going to try because of his level of need, I know that's not going to happen. Now, what do we do? We bring him to the local GAA. We try our best there uh, and we try there. We've got there's a local um, rugby club here trying to get him out in the community. Because he has in a mainstream school, he does have friends in that school who uh, totally embrace him and totally want him to be there with them and have been nothing but kind to him. And that, I suppose, for them, has been great for them to see him because, of, again, it would be he's quite a high level of need. So to come back to the whole thing of the socialization piece, I suppose, you know, we do have a world that expects us to be very social and able. And I suppose we all have to learn to conform in some way. But I do think there's a lot of work now going on with making embracing diversity, both in schools and both in the workplace as well. So there's lots of things going on even to do with specialist attorney, if you've heard about them and they're doing fantastic work. And as I am, of course, phenomenal work again in really beginning to change the way people view autism and I suppose a lot of it is to do with education and education of us as individuals and the system as to what the requirement is do you know I think you know it is a big philosophical discussion 
and we are starting to move. And the other voice that needs to be heard is of the autistic adult or the autistic child. Their voice needs to be heard. It's not just all about the parents. So at the moment it is because, you know, depend, interdependent on your age of your, your child. But as the, the voices of autistic people are beginning to heard, and there's a lot of research now around that and hearing the voice of, of autistic people. And that's when change will happen, I think, is when, when they say, well, this is what I'd like to, to look at, or this is what I'd like to do. And, you know, don't ask me to do this because that's ridiculous, you know, and they're talking also about trying to have teachers involved in autistic teachers in schools as well, you know, teaching as well within that to have a better understanding. But as you said, rightly from the beginning, autism is a large spectrum and every child's needs and every child's way that they, you know, socialize or do anything like that is very interdependent on the child. But to support it as much as you can, I suppose. And I think it is probably becoming part of the mainstream narrative a little bit more. We are seeing more kind of movies about people who are on That I, I do think that uh, view of you know, getting the voice of somebody who has the lived experience is crucially important to our understanding of it. And I think even with children, that's hugely valuable. And, and I mean, we talked there about the difficulty integrating within schools. I think there's another question here about the integration into families. Yeah, you kind of question here about a blended family where finding there is a child, the the new family, shall we say, the blended family, there is a child in there that has autism and the partner of the person talking about here loves the the son of the new family. Very much gets very frustrated with him as my son struggles with focus and can, can act out. My partner gets annoyed as he feels my son is very demanding of me and takes advantage of my softness, especially as I'm very cognizant of his ASD. He can sometimes be overcritical of my son and my son responds by apologizing just to pacify my partner to stop him from giving out. This also mimics the dynamic my son has with his biological dad. So I suppose the complexity here seems to be about the understanding of the way the mom of the child, the autistic child, works and deals with that, works with her, her child, and the perception of the, the adult in that or the other, the non-biological father and the biological father there around how she does that. And I think this is not just in terms of limited to ASD. I mean, I think there's lots of, of parents will struggle between what is the behavior that is because of the condition and what is behavior that is because they're a child? So the idea that, and I think there's an interesting debate here around the good parent of somebody with ASD, ADHD, whatever it might be, is not someone who just gives into them all the time because there's an element of behavior that won't be related to ASD or won't be related to ADHD. And it's, in, it's the skill of parenting, I think, is trying to decide what is one versus another and trying to be able to work like and i always i've said this a number of times but i do think it's really important defining the difference between unwilling and unable is the one of the key skills that parents can do so if someone's unwilling to behave but they can they may need something directive and you know kind of a, a formalized kind of sanction-based approach whereas someone who's unable that approach would make would have devastating impacts on their impact of self-esteem because you're asking them to do something they can't do but the, uh, and I do think this is a, a tightrope that people have to walk sometimes when you have a child with needs how much of this because you don't want to enable the child to develop more difficult behaviors by not challenging it etc and then you don't want to be challenging a child 
when clearly they're not able to do it. So in this situation, I think there's probably, possibly, a truth in the middle. And mum here has said that she's mentioned herself as being soft and that, that the other people think that this boy is kind of playing his mother a little bit in this way. And then the, the other view is that these, uh, these men, this stepdad and biological dad, don't understand the child's needs and they're expecting far too much of them. So maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle in terms of this. And I would try and see that... Again, it's trial and error because you don't know what a child is able for or unwilling for without practice. And I think parenting is part of trying to pace that by introducing enough surmountable stress into your child's life that they grow and they emerge and they develop, but not overwhelm them. And oftentimes, again, I don't know, there's no blood test for that. There's no x-ray for that. So you're doing it based on trial and error. But it is, and I, I'd be interested to hear what you think of this, Miriam. I mean, in terms of maximizing and optimizing a child's ability to, to be the best that they can be involves challenging them and asking them to try things that are new. But again, challenging and trying things that you're clearly not able to do can have a devastating effect on the child. So What's your view on that as a parent of a child with autism? Okay, I suppose firstly, it's often very hard. First of all, if you're dependent on how old your child is, your child is that age and it depends on where they are as to whether they're emotionally at that age. Do you know what I mean? Firstly. Uh, and then, you know, it is very hard sometimes to know, is that now because my child is autistic or is he just being a little whatever you want to say yourself? Mm -hmm. And sometimes... Sometimes a child with needs can have a lot of their needs met by people. And, you know, there can be the center of attention, like if you've got a, an SNA in school, if you've got student support, a resource, you know, there's lots going on. And then they come home and you're trying to live your life, but they're expecting that level of attention again. So it can be a very difficult thing to kind of negotiate. And then if language is an issue with my own child, language would be very, you know, functional language is very difficult from you actually don't know a lot of the time. So, but a lot of the time behavior it happens because something else is happening. So behavior is communication is what they say all along, isn't it? So it's to try and work it out. And I suppose you're always on a guessing game with a parent of an autistic child if their, their verbal language is, is an issue or a bit of what exactly is the issue. Is it, are they trying to, very much they're trying to communicate something with me. Is it, they've had a bad day. Is it school was too much for them? And, you know, they often come back and say, it's like, you know, child coming home and exploding when they come home because they've kept it all inside. Is it that? Is it that they're finding this very difficult? Is it their sensory overload? All the stuff that I don't see because I haven't got, I am, I'm not autistic. So I think a lot of it is to step back and say to yourself, well, actually, if you can look at it and say, well, actually, what is happening here? if I can, and, and how do I manage it? So Temple Grandin, who would be, you know, Dr. Temple Grandin talks a lot about the loving push. So how important it is to push your autistic children. But again, within, you know, within their limitations of your child and what your expectation is within that. I mean, I think, and that's very much a parental decision on their own as to what, what is to do there. But just because a child might be non-verbal doesn't mean that they're not able. Just because a child has, you know, maybe other, maybe ADHD, a comorbid comorbidity, but they maybe if help was given with that, the child might be able to sit, um, you know, better in, in class. Maybe if the child has issue with sensory issues, you with the right help. This is when things like OT come in so important for a child. You get the strategies there to be able to manage that so that they aren't getting sensory overload 
you know, all the things that might look like it's a behavior, the behavior actually is a child trying to communicate something to you. That's the first thing. And then a child is a child is a child, are they not? And I'm sure I wasn't always good myself. So, and in one way, sometimes it can be quite endearing when your autistic child acts like a child you would consider to do the same thing you know what I mean so the other night to give an example my my husband they do Super Mario here and my husband had said no to him because he was well in the Irish context my our child was being bold right and then our son who would be very un un can be very unaffectionate came up and said oh mammy mammy a big hug and then kept hugging me and said mammy can we just play one game now he doesn't have a lot of language and I don't know where that so but he was determined he was going to (laughs) Well, it's the same thing with any parents, isn't it? One child asks one parent, one parent says no, and then they try the other. So I, even though he didn't get it, we were still kind of going, oh God, isn't that kind of nice that he's kind of tried to play, tried to pull the wool over my eyes because I wasn't involved in it. And I thought, God, isn't that kind of nice that he could do that? Do you know, so we laughed about it, but it can be very challenging if the two people aren't on the same page as per, you know, what we're saying there. I mean, for those two fathers, really education is key there, you know, and there's so much available. And we actually have a lot of fathers in our group, which has been fantastic. So we have a lot of the dads involved, which has been great. And it's great to hear their perspective. So that thing of informing themselves to understand, you know, autism better. I mean, the Middletown Centre for Autism has fabulous um, webinars on at the moment. There's no end of stuff that you could be doing to really understand it a little bit better. And I think if you understand a little bit better, it does help then in how you respond to it. So I I would kind of say that to that that parent. And I think that's the whole message behind this podcast is trying to understand child's behaviour that leaves us in a position to respond better to it. And I think... That's been a theme throughout all these questions is that parents need to be able to inform themselves and understand. And again, I, in most difficulties in mental health problems, one of the greatest prognosis or prognostic indicators of how well something will go is parental understanding of the condition because it allows you to, and I love that phrase, what did you call it, the therapeutic push or, you know, that, that could be a loving push, a, you call a it. loving push, push, yeah, because it's so, it, it captures that challenge all the time but i think uh, we've covered a lot of the ac questions there there's a few things i think that is important to point out i think sometimes people parents look through a a diagnostic list and because their child might not have one of those features they'll say that's not an asd issue because they're empathetic or they hug children or people have a kind of stereotypical understanding of what autism asd and things are and i do think there's a great deal of variation in presentation, that there will be many children who may struggle with social sides of things or emotional maturity, etc. That doesn't mean that they, they might be very affectionate, they might be very warm, and these are not inclusive or exclusive indicators of whether they need support or help. And I think sometimes we can get kind of caught up in that list of symptoms or the obsessional interests, or the, yes, that puts them in or that puts them not. Children who have these needs need support, and it is up to us as parents, communities and schools to support them, regardless of the diagnosis or not. But the issue being that, and I think you pointed out to this, that the, the diagnosis sometimes is necessary for the resources. And then, um, yeah, but I think as as a community in schools and, and in communities, we just need to be more inclusive of people, hear their voice more, understand more about it. And again, kind of brush up on our own knowledge around what 
is helpful and what is not so that we can better support people within our communities to involve in that. And there's there just recently, it's oftentimes I give out about sport on this podcast because I think there's a lot of elitism and things in it. But I was just chatting to someone last Saturday in Carla Rugby Club and they have a bees group, B-E-E-S, and at six o'clock on a Thursday. And any children with any needs are invited to come and play in that. And uh, they would have children with physical needs, mental health needs, etc. And they have just said it's been phenomenal in terms of how much the children enjoy it. And I just love to see communities inclusive, genuinely inclusive, rather than it just being a poster on the door saying we are inclusive, to actually live that out and offer those opportunities uh, is, is fantastic. So just to catch it, we have two initiatives, I suppose, locally. There's the Terranure Tigers in the rugby club here that's been running for a number of years. And that's in the rugby club and that's for children with additional needs. And actually one of the parents from our group has just set up the Ranala Rockets in uh, the GAA down um, in Ranala Gales. And that's proven to be really successful as well. So there's two examples, I suppose, parents or somebody who's got involved from the community point of view, you know. So sport is one thing you, you did mention there about a diagnosis. I mean, you do not need a diagnosis anymore to get supports in school. So that's what you do need a report to say if your child needs a special class or a special school. That's yes. my understanding at the moment, just to say that. So if your child is struggling in school, it is really important as a parent to articulate that and go and really, because your school is there to support your child. There's no other question. They are child centric. You and as a parent, you work in partnership with your school. And I think a lot of us bring our own maybe our own relationships. Maybe we had in schools with us. It's not you are there as a partner in your and, and you are the primary educator of your child, but you are the partner with the school. And just to empower parents to say if they're not happy, if they're worried about their child, the supports are there and, and make yourself known, you know what I mean? And say that. So to come back to the whole thing about the diagnostic thing, the child is A or B, there is no child who's the same. You'll see traits and you'll say, oh, yeah, Grant, yeah, I can understand that. But every child is an individual and everybody's an individual and they happen to have a diagnosis or happen to be autistic. I think that's what it is. But you mentioned there about it is the responsibility of the parents and the community. It's actually the responsibility of the state here to be providing uh, the services that they should be providing. They need to be ambitious. They need to be forward thinking. They need to be data driven how they're doing this because they're not. And they also need to be child centred and they also need to be family centred. And I think that's what the, the gap has been. So it, it's to be much more ambitious about how you're providing a service and much more creative about it. And I've lots of ideas around it, but I think the creativity around it and how you do things a bit differently, I think, is really what needs to happen. Like we have an issue and I suppose we come back to the involved autism things. And everybody always said, oh, they've no special classes in that area. And not one person, maybe people just didn't or people as anybody with any as an autistic child, their life is very complex and busy. But why don't you? So why? So why isn't this here? And why it isn't? Why is it not here? And what can we do about it? I think that's for me is really from a parental point of view. The most important things is to empower yourself and knowledge is power and also to find your tribe. Because you'll find other parents and then, you know, you'll have, you know, you can make and you need that because I don't think everybody, not everybody, even in your own family is going to totally understand, understand that. But I think also when you do have an autistic child, it's important that the family embraces it as well, that you get support and understands that you're talking about your nephews there. 
you know, that the family understands it and understands the complexity, maybe that your sister needs support and all that stuff that goes with it. I just think, you know, and then from the community, the community to recognize that these children are here. But if your child is on a bus every day of the week, you're not going to know, nobody's going to know that that child is part of the community or should be part of the community. And the other thing is when the community does come on board, and I can say that myself, you know, even to have that public meeting, a number of my friends came to that meeting, a number of, you know, my son's PA came to the meeting and they, my son, my children, my son's parents from the son's school came and they were so upset and they were texting me all the next day. And I know that that has caused a sea change with them. And hopefully that might cause a sea change maybe if they're come up against it again you know and, and and that they can help somebody out so it's all about for that it, it that's what it's all about to me so we're in a situation i think where the prevalence is quite high for some reason and whatever that is about and maybe that's complex as to why that's happened to do with diagnoses and stuff like that but the main thing is the children are there they happen to be autistic and how are we going to support them and the families around them i think that's the main thing Fantastic, Miriam. And again, anyone who will know me in terms of the, the issues around, I, I wouldn't be keen to give the state a pass on anything. I think there's a, a core issue around protecting our children and providing these services for them. But you've just offered some wonderful insights there into where we need to progress to in terms of inclusion in a meaningful way. And uh, it's lovely to hear that, you know, the Ranilla Rockets and the uh, the Ternier Tigers. And, and again, we just need people, communities, the state, parents, and everyone to try to step up to do that. I'm going to just kind of conclude this. Um, but I think, Miriam, what you've articulated there in terms of the, the needs, the and giving a voice to young people with ASD, autism, and trying to kind of just increase our awareness and, and really just empathize with parents who are really struggling with very limited resources. And I think the the COVID lockdown has been hugely disruptive to this community. And I think these young people have missed out massively. And of course, we understand the physical needs for everything that has happened and all that sort of stuff. But there really needs to be a rethink in the reboarding when we you know we we've we've heard about how perhaps with covid the this launch of care thing that was going to take 10 years might be done in five and we might be able to move things on quickly and when we've had a pause button we we might be in a position to restart things differently and i think in the area of supporting children with asd it, this is an opportunity for us as a state as a community as a country to really do something different this time round and do it quickly. And I do think the one of the time is not a renewable resource. And for parents of children with additional needs in this area, time is so precious because, you know, we know earlier intervention works better. We know the level of support that are needed for young people with this, uh, with these challenges. And, and we know what parents need too. So it's not that we don't know what we need. We just need to get it. Um, and I just want to say, uh, I wish you'd continued success in, in providing a voice for young people with autism and, and congratulations on the work that you've done so far. And I've no doubt from speaking to you today, you're not finished, uh, which is great. Uh, and I look, here, I look forward to hearing more about uh, the success of your campaign and, and again, the primacy of education for these children. So uh, I'd like to thank you very much for that. It's been great to be able to talk about the campaign, but also about uh, parental voice, I think, is another thing we need to talk about. And I think it's important that that's embraced, acknowledged <clears throat> and respected, actually, um, because nobody knows their child better than the parent of the child. 
and I think that should that confidence should be given to that parent too do you know and I think it's very important that that happens so the parental voice enables your child's voice you know and then also the voice of the community and the community beginning to embrace these children and embrace them further with really meaningful inclusion and I would love to be in a situation and I know a lot of our parents would have loved to have been able to kind of walk locally to their local school with their child and met the neighbours and being part of the local GAA, and, but, but you're not. And so the isolation is mirrored as a parent. Your isolation is there as the parent of a, an autistic child, and then you, the child is isolated then. So we really need to start looking at that uh, and saying, and we're not saying that there are some great people around, and I mean that, and there's some, and, and, and people, I just think people don't know that you're here unless they produce a very good report last year about invisible children. And that's really what has happened is a lot of the children are invisible. And as, as a result, so are you, you know? So it's time to change that. And hopefully by raising our voices, and we're only a start, and there's other groups, which is great to see as well, other parents coming together. That has begun to be, you know, there might be a sea change with that as well. So I think... We're, I think we've just we're just starting to be honest. Absolutely. And I think my thing is lots of people say to you so that'll that'll just that'll do, but it, it won't do. It has to be better, and it's, it's it's really time for some change. And sometimes adversity makes us change, doesn't it? So COVID has happened, and it, there's so much you could say, and so difficult for so many people. But sometimes, you know, maybe there might be a possibility of change, and we need to embrace it. And hopefully, there'll be a better way forward. Absolutely. And I just think to, to thank you, Miriam, for joining me today. But I just wanted to finish up on the um, the the issue that, I, as I say, I have a personal experience of this. My, both my nephews have autism and my sister, Eleanor, who is, uh, I can absolutely say, is a hero of mine, to be honest. The resilience level that she has shown our family over the last 10, 12 years has been phenomenal. But the struggle that she has had has been so difficult as well. But again, I, I just think we need to we need to up our game because what we've done so far isn't enough. But I hope you found some of the things that Miriam and I talked about today useful. Uh, and as you know, if you have any questions, you can get in touch with us with the uh, Asking for a Parent on Twitter. Uh, or you can email us at askingforaparent at gmail.com and we'll get to your questions in the next episode. But listen... Thanks for joining. Miriam Kenny, thank you for being with me on the episode today. And to everyone out there, stay safe, take care, and bye for now.